2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm here with only Evan Ratliff. No Aaron Lambert. Aaron Lambert is taking the week off. Slacking. Someone else who is taking every week off from the podcast, yeah, he's Joshua taking about a, Almost close to a year off. Yeah. He, he'll, Sabbatical. When he, when he gets around to it, he will come in and co-host the podcast. But Joshua Behrman, I must point out, has a new story in The Atavist. It's called Coronado High. It's about a crazy drug ring that started at Coronado High School in San Diego, led by a Spanish teacher, ex-Spanish teacher. Yeah, you should go buy it. It's uh, totally insane. Um, where were you? You just went away. What'd you do? I was in Grapevine, Texas, which is uh, home of the Mayborn Writers Conference. And I went out there. There were a lot of amazing writers, one of whom was Kelly Benham from the Tampa Bay Times, formerly the St. Pete Times. Uh, and she has written... A lot of stories about a lot of things, but uh, in the past year writ, wrote an incredible uh, Pulitzer Prize finalist series about the birth of her daughter. She's uh, really amazing to talk to. Yeah, I'm really excited that we had her on. I'm, I'm a big uh, St. Pete Times fanboy, so I'm, I'm glad we finally got some representation. Um, if you want to represent yourself to a whole bunch of your friends and family, you should think about trying Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's done by the good people at Bailchimp, and they are our sponsors. Here's Evan and Kelly. So first, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. You're just coming from uh, basically bringing down the house at the <laughs> Mayborn <laughs> conference. Uh, people were crying. People were laughing. It was actually like a, it was a, people said uh, like incredible performance, like it was some sort of like play. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, so, if, if nobody cries, I'm pretty disappointed. Yeah, I guess yeah. Uh, that that would be natural. So obviously I want to talk about the story. Probably like everyone wants to talk to you about this story from last year. But um, and we usually try not to make these podcasts like this is your life, you know, take you through your whole life kind of thing. But I actually did want to maybe just start with your career path because I feel like this story, you may disagree, but it seems like this is the story of your life so far. Like this is... And and you you couldn't write it just out of nowhere. You couldn't just like if this had happened to you maybe a long time ago, you might not have been able to write that story. I'm guessing. Definitely right. Um, so I guess I wanted to kind of start back with uh, how you got started in journalism uh, yeah. to begin with. I've been like kind of a journalism nerd for a long time. Um, I started in the Pointer Institute's high school writers camp, and the you know the Pointer Institute is the great school for journalists that owns the um, Tampa Bay Times. Is and it based in Florida? It's, it yeah, it's in St. Petersburg. In and and I grew up in that area reading the what was then the St. Petersburg Times and reading, the, you know, Ann Hull and David Finkel and Rick Bragg and Tom French and these incredible writers. Um, I read that paper probably since I was in the fifth grade. Um, 
And when I started high school, a teacher gave me an application to this writer's camp from the Pointer Institute. And I thought it was like creative writing, like poetry camp. I mean, I didn't really know what it was. <laughs> I just applied because my friend across the street was applying. And um, I went and it turned out to be journalism camp. And I became like kind of a pointer uh, writing nerd. And I went a couple of years and they um, gave me a scholarship to college um, where I studied oh, wow. journalism. And, um, in Florida also? Mm-hmm, at the University of Florida. Oh, we and have it, we have an atavist intern from the University of Florida. Oh, right great, now. Yeah, go Gators! She's great. Um, and it came with, um, I think I did two or three summer internships at the times, and then I taught um, high school for a while. I kind of took a little diversion, and I taught at a journalism magnet high school in South Florida um, for three years, and then I went to um, graduate school again in journalism. <laughs> At the University of Maryland, um, because they had at that time some incredible faculty members. They still do have incredible faculty members. But at that time, they had Gene Roberts, the legendary editor from the Philadelphia Inquirer and the New York Times, and John Franklin, you know, this is the godfather of literary journalism. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to study with those people. Um, so I went to grad school at Maryland. So I really had a lot of journalism instruction and you went back to grad school specifically to study with those people and yes. that's sort of like what a fiction writer would do is yes. like pick out or or a or an artist or something it's almost like an apprenticeship you're picking people you want to learn from yeah and i i wasn't even sure then if i wanted a career in newspapers i mean i thought i probably would want to teach i just thought these guys are there and that's i need to go you know um it was, it was just a year-long program and it was it was incredible i mean those are I, I learned, I learned and suffered so much <laughs> at their hands, and you know went straight from there to the Times, um, where I just covered local news for a little bit, and then became a feature writer, and um, you know gradually learned to write longer, more complex stories, and then became an editor, and I was an editor for seven years. And when you say wrote about local news, I was reading back some uh, just like past stuff of yours here and there, and uh, then I read somewhere that the first story that you wrote was about this rooster attack and I found, I couldn't find the whole piece for some reason, but I found part of the piece and just tell the story of sort of like, I mean, was that your first assignment for the newspaper or it was just your first sort of like longer? It wasn't my first story. It was, it was within the first month. Mm -hmm. Um, I was covering this little community of Tarpon Springs, about 20,000 people. And I had sort of asked, um, you know, the police, um, PIO, you know, I, you know, I don't want to just hear about the, really newsworthy stuff. I just I want to hear about quirky stuff too because Tarpon Springs is a pretty quirky little community. <laughs> and I came in one day and he said, well, I've got this rooster attack. And it just turns out that a lot of the writers that I grew up admiring had a pivotal, an- pivotal animal story <laughs> earlier in their career. You know, Rick Bragg wrote famously about a chicken named Mopsy. <sighs> and Tom French wrote about a, a really big pig at the Indiana State Fair and that's how he got his job at the um, at the Times. And you could do a pretty good anthology of St. Pete Times animal stories over the years. There was a river otter that attacked a dog. There you know, countless alligators. <laughs> so when this guy said rooster attack, I mean, I actually felt a tremendous amount of pressure. Like, oh, God, I've got a rooster. This is it. You've been handed the story. This is the story. What are you going to do with it? You know, and I'm going to overwrite it, you know, until it screams. And I'm either going to get fired or it's going to be great. And... um. I started asking questions about this this rooster and 
So of course, the first one you ask is, does a rooster have a name? And the rooster's name is Rockadoodle 2, which leads to the next obvious question. Well, was there a Rockadoodle 1? Oh, yeah. You know, and, and it goes in the whole lineage of the roosters. And there was Rockadoodle and Henny Penny. And Henny Penny only had one leg because she got attacked by a pit bull. And it just, <laughs> just kind of went on and on. And, and the story just spun out of control. And so the lead was, you know, um, when they heard the screams... No one suspected the rooster. <laughs> and it became like this parody of a cop story where the, the rooster is the, the quiet, you know, kid that never, never acted up before, you know. But it's kind of amazing to think that, I mean, so your, your approach to it was almost like now is my chance to do some literary journalism, you know, smallness of the story be damned. Like I'm going to find the details that will... Make well, that's what you work. have to do, right? Because no one's going to hand you a six-month project when you're <laughs> right out of school. And I had just been to a conference and listened to Jackie Banaszynski do a keynote. And one of the pieces of advice that she gave that I'll never forget was you you learn narrative one line at a time. And that's what I tried to do on that little beat. You know, the first story, the literal first story that I wrote was about a, a brief about a sod truck that flipped over. Well, you can't make poetry out of that, um, but you really can't screw it up either. So I, you know, I just, well, called the um, press officer and said, well, what kind of sod? And he's like, are you serious? And I'm like, well, yeah, I want to know what kind of sod. And, and he told me, and it, it's not like that made this little brief so much better. It's just that you're sort of practicing the moves that you're going to need later. I mean, if you, if you can't write about a rooster attack, then you, you can't write about... Um, you know, hostage situation or a big murder. So I would go to these pretty minor like car wrecks <laughs> and I would write them like they were like Quentin Tarantino <laughs> movies, you know, like I'd have all this dialogue and like all this screeching and, you know, the, the sequencing and the chronology. And it was like really over the top, but nobody read it. So it was okay. Uh-huh. You know, I think, I think that's where you want to really stretch and experiment is in those stories where an editor can save you and it's not on the front page. And (laughs) if you overdo it, you know, no one will find it until 20 years later when you're being interviewed. Yeah. yeah. Or someone reading the paper will get to, you know, a 16 and have a laugh at the blurb. Yeah. I mean, you want to their head a little bit. You want to do these things when the stakes are low. Right. Mm hmm. So, so when you when you were you so then you started editing were you did you stop writing or were you were you writing as as well as editing enterprise I really parties? didn't write I mean I'm just not disciplined enough to write unless someone's got a gun to my head I'm not like one of these people that goes home and you know writes works on my novel at night I've just never been that kind of person I can remember holding a one of those fat red elementary school pencils and having my mom standing over my shoulder in just about in tears of frustration trying to get me to meet a deadline and i'm still that way mm. wow <laughs> i know it's but real. does that mean you're but are you still a taskmaster when it comes to imposing such deadlines on others i don't think i'm a taskmaster i think i'm um sort of i think i'm a little more empathetic i think i i i really kind of understand the the chaos and mess that is the writing process and it's it's all writing and it's all part of the process and it's all part of, you know, it's all part of getting you there. So I just try to, as an editor, I try to understand what my writer's processes are 
so I can figure out how best to help them get through it. You know, and some of them are real panicky and some of them like to talk a lot at the beginning and throughout and some of them need to be left alone a little bit and some need to write in the middle of the night and some need, you know, a kick in the butt and, you know, some like to be threatened and some like to be fed, you know, whatever they need. That's what I try to give them. Mm -hmm. And the pieces you wrote, I mean, you wrote a piece that got a lot of attention about Terry Schiavo during the Terry Schiavo. Was that, was that before you started becoming an editor? Yeah, that was still a writer then. I wrote about her twice. Uh And, and I mean, the one I went back and read was the, was the obituary, which, you know, it seemed like it got a lot of acclaim because it took a different, I mean, here's this woman that everyone's talking about who's become the center of this national conversation, but she is sort of lost in it. And the, the piece was really just about her and who right. she was. was. How did that, how did that come about? I mean, had you been covering the, the issues and that around it? No, that was really, that was really one of the hardest stories I had ever done because I hadn't been covering it and it seemed like everyone else had. I mean, it seemed like everyone at our paper had worked on this story because it was such a huge national story and it was right in our backyard. And it was literally one day my editor just walked up and said, I need you to write something about Terry Schiavo. And I was like, well, what? And he's like, well, I don't know. Figure something out. And that's just a nightmare of an assignment, especially for someone like me who um, I have just a lot of anxiety at the, right at the beginning mm-hmm. of the process. And I mean, the blood drained out of my head and my face went numb and I couldn't feel my fingers and I thought I was going to throw up. And I ended up just going through clips and we'd written a, we'd written more than 300 stories about her at that point. Wow. And I read all of them and just started tucking away little details that I found interesting. And they were, a lot of them were personal details and, you know, like she lost her left little toe to a bone infection. Well, that's interesting. File it away. She was allergic to whatever, you know, and I filed that away. And then I found a photograph of her online that I'd never seen before. And it wasn't the sort of, um, the one that I'd seen on CNN of her in the hospital with the curled hands and the short hair and the gaping mouth. It was a a photograph of a really beautiful, young, healthy girl with, you know, sun-bleached hair, you know, and I thought, why haven't I seen this photograph before? This is the person I want to write about. And if we do nothing else, we need to publish this photo. Because if this happened to me and my mom put me on CNN looking like that day after day after day after day, I'd be really mad. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'd want pictures of me when I looked my best to be out there. So that was where it started. And I, I wrote a story called um, A Thousand Words About the Terry Schiavo You Never Knew. And... That was sort of the beginning of what became the obituary when they they approached me again when she actually was was dying and said we need to do her obituary. I was like, no, 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 just just rerun the story I already wrote. <laughs> I'm I'm just so bad about trying to get out of assignments. <laughs> but um, my editor Mike Wilson really talked me through it, and he said, you know, she had two lives. She had the one before the collapse and the one after. And that was a, an, a little kernel of meaning that I latched onto. And he said she was a vessel. And I thought about that. And I ended up writing in the, in the obit, you know, she was a vessel into which people poured their need for miracles and their ideas about faith and religion and whatever, whatever, and their terror of letting go. And so I wrote about her as a, as a real person, but also as, 
about a, an idea. What, what kind of response did that piece get? Hmm. I mean, this was kind of before Facebook and Twitter and everything made. Yeah. We didn't have comments on the bottom of stories then. Um, I, I think I got, did get a lot of emails about it. Um, but it wasn't like you could take the temperature of the response in the way that you can now. Yeah. Or for something to just go national all yeah. of a sudden just mm-hmm. because it starts spreading. Yeah. I guess it feels it like a different back in the old days. era now. Yeah. You're just writing something for a very particular audience <laughs> that buys a newspaper. I mean, we were still having discussions then about whether to put that story online. Oh, wow. Um, ahead of, ahead of the print version. And that story we actually held back and didn't publish it until it ran in the paper. Wow. Because they, they felt like it was kind of a special thing and they wanted to to hang on to it. We wouldn't do that now. What is what is it about this newspaper? I mean, I'm not a I mean, I'm a big newspaper reader, but I never worked at a newspaper, so you know, I'm not I don't the inner workings of like how enterprise features get assigned and that stuff, I really don't have any knowledge of that. But all I know is like, you know, I look at my childhood paper paper, which was the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, and it's like a I mean, all due respect to the people who work there, I'm sure work very hard, but it's like, it's really struggling and it doesn't do stories that like break out nationally in some way. And, but the St. Pete slash now Tampa Bay times, you just have these writers that just, it's like a roster of writers who have both been through before and now are there that you read these stories. What, so where does this come from? I guess is I'm just curious, like how did this come about this tradition and how does it continue? Just think about how I was formed as a journalist. You know, it's because um, it's because of the Pointer Institute, um, and that came about because Nelson Pointer gave away his newspaper when he died. Instead of letting it fall into the hands of a chain that would be um, beholden to shareholders that are not from the area, he created this school for journalists, and he gave the newspaper to it. So we're um, independent. And it allows us to really put the work first. And we're struggling financially like, you know, anybody, although our you know, circulation is doing well um, and our readers are fantastic. But it really has always been a place in my experience where the work comes first. And I've never, knock on wood, um, maybe the day is coming, I don't know, but I haven't been told no on a big project. You know, I, if they identify something as important, they really put their support behind it. And I've worked on some great projects with a lot of writers and um, had nothing but incredible support from the editors and also incredible insights. And all of the top editors in our paper were great writers and reporters in their own right. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's in our DNA. People come, you know, I went there because I read Rick Bragg and Ann Hull and David Finkel and Tom French. And now... People come because they're reading Ben Montgomery and Michael Cruz and Lane DeGregory and Leonora LePeter. Yeah. So, um, and we've got these these young kids coming along, these little whippersnappers. Goodness. So, uh, I think we should probably tell people to, they should just pause the podcast and go read this set of stories. Uh, okay, y'all do that. We'll wait here. Yeah. Um, because, <laughs> I, you know... I don't think we need to sort of walk through every detail of the story, but I, I you know, for people who may have read it a while ago, uh, it's Never Let Go is the name of the series mm-hmm. of stories. And what was the actual, when did, what dates did they run? The end of 2012? Started at the beginning of December. Beginning of December. First week of December. And um, why don't you just sort of 
give a capsule. It's not possible to give a capsule. But, you know, what led into you writing this? Like, tell us about the events a little bit. Well, I was, um, my husband and I tried for four and a half years to have a baby. He already had two sons, but I really wanted a baby. And I just pretty much did the torture treatment on him until he agreed. (laughs) And everything was cool. And everything was fine. And until in the 20th week, which is halfway through my pregnancy, I went into labor. And I ended up delivering this baby in the 23rd week, which is um, right at the sort of cusp of human viability outside the womb. So, you know, the abortion debate is all over the news right now because in most places you can get an abortion until the 24th week. And people are trying to back that up because these babies are considered viable at younger and younger ages now and my baby was born in the 23rd week so Mm -hmm. it's just a really interesting time um but i wasn't thinking about it in those terms all i was thinking was oh my god my baby's gonna die in front of my eyes i'm gonna watch it happen um and she was one pound four ounces she was 11 and a half inches long you could see through her skin. You could see her heart beating in her chest. Her eyes refused shut um, like a little newborn puppy. She was hooked up to all these tubes and machines and monitors and things. And it was absolutely terrifying. And the, the odds were that she would die. And the doctors wanted us to to make a choice of, of how hard to fight for her. and um, And we ended up cautiously, you know, telling them to to try to save her. So it was the story is about the six and a half months that we spent in the neonatal intensive care unit at All Children's Hospital. And it's also about this medical and scientific frontier that is the neonatal intensive care unit and which a big part of the work that they do is these very, very early premature babies. And where's that line, you know, of viability and what is a baby like in that, in that stage? And we watched our daughter develop outside the womb like she would have if she were inside me. And that was a pretty incredible thing to watch. I told Tom it was like looking in God's pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like you're seeing something that you are not supposed to see. And it's also a story ultimately about how we figured out how to be parents to a baby that we couldn't touch or, you know, and a baby that I had used a donor egg. So she had no biological connection to me. Actually, my body had spit her out before the third trimester and I couldn't hold her very much in the hospital. I couldn't feed her. I couldn't take care of her. So it's all about like the creation of our family and, and of our daughter. And I'm, I'm not going to ask you too many questions about what happened because I think, I mean, between the story, which is, it's unbelievable. And uh, there was a Radiolab episode also, which people can listen to. Um, I think those are, those are adequately uh, covered there. So I'm, I'm more interested here in sort of like the process of writing the story. And at what point when you came out of all that, did you start to think maybe this is something that I might want to write about? And then I guess the next step would be published to the world. Right. <laughs> it was it was very soon after she came home from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of factors in that decision. One was a very practical one, which was 
I'd been gone from work since um, March and it was now November and someone else was doing my job and I wasn't getting paid and you know I needed to figure out what to do next and I didn't want to get fired I knew that I had a really incredible story to tell and I knew that it was the best story that I was ever going to have to tell but also just from a practical sense it it really worked for me to try to tell this story because I could kind of do it on my own time I could be at home and get her the baby to her doctor's appointments when I needed to. And I kind of started working on it part-time a little bit and then mm-hmm. transitioned into full-time later. Mm-hmm. So it just worked on a lot of levels. But I felt as a parent that it was something that I really wanted to to get down and capture for my daughter. And I would probably never do it just if I was just left alone like because um, I don't journal and I don't write for fun. But as a journalist, I felt like I absolutely had to tell the story because it really hadn't been told well um, because it would be impossible to get the kind of access that we had. And it would take years to find a character that was as good as our as our daughter's story. Just um, writing about a 26-weeker would be completely different from writing about a 23-weeker. And 23 weeks is right where the, the line is, and that's where the story is. And that's where the ethical challenges are the greatest. And that is a story that really needed to be told. There are so many big questions wrapped up inside that situation. And to have a baby that went through as much as our daughter went through and came as close to the edge as she was and ended up in as good shape as she did is just almost unheard of. I mean, she came home from the hospital without any major issues. Um, so I'd have to be a total idiot not to write this story. Right? You could, if you decided you were going to write about this topic, you could spend years, years and not find you. Years. You could not find that character. Right. So, I mean, it's, you know, I had to do the story. But the story also had to be, it had to be first person. It had to be first person. And that, uh, was maybe not something you had done a lot of or sought to do. Never write about done. Yourself. Never done. Like I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a sharer. <laughs> you know, my husband is the sharer in the family. <laughs> and I'm not. I don't um talk about like stuff like that. I mean, most of the people in my family didn't even know that I've been trying to have a baby for that long or that I'd done IVF or that I had done the donor egg deal. A lot of my friends didn't know I was pregnant because I wasn't really showing. Right. So when the bulletin board note went up at work, a lot of people were like, what, she was pregnant? You know, <laughs> like Kelly had a baby. What are you talking about? You know, they thought it was an accident. They didn't. I mean, it was just news to a lot of people. And um, so, I mean, a lot of my friends and family learned a lot of the details of our story when they read it in the Tampa Bay Times, which is really weird. But you also you you went back and reported it as well. That's my training and my instinct, right? And it's it's more comfortable for me than just doing a um, pure memoir, like just a journalistic kind of very internal kind of story would be. And my fear as a writer is always that I'm going to be very sentimental, um, that my story is, is going to feel like a cliche or like a lifetime movie. And I just didn't want to be writing about miracles or hope or journeys 
or the healing power of love or like, you know, that stuff just makes me throw up in my mouth. And <laughs> the way around that is always through reporting. It's always through finding the concrete and specific details that can get you past those cliches. So I really threw myself into the reporting. Could you do it unemotionally? I mean, not that any of this is unemotional. It's all it's all going to be emotional. But how, how difficult was it to go back and be extracting these details. I mean, there's some amazing details that come from the people. You even say in the story things that you didn't know at the time that doctors were thinking, yeah. you know, that she wasn't going to make it, that doctors were assuming she wasn't going to make it. And then you have to go back and hear that. How difficult was that process? I don't, I mean, I guess I should say, oh, it was so difficult, but it, it was fascinating to me. I mean, it was, to me, it was, it was hard to hear some of those things, but I really wanted to hear them, you know. And I think that was weird for some of the nurses sometimes, you know, because I would ask these strange questions like, what happens when a baby dies? You know, where's the dead baby closet? You know, like I would, I would, you know, ask these crazy questions or I'd say like um, a really difficult problem for premature babies is getting IV access because their veins blow. Their veins are not formed. I mean, everything's so thin on them. So they're constantly running out of, places to put IVs and they put them in the scalp and they put them everywhere. And I said, what do you do if you get a baby that has only has like one leg or something like how? And it's a real question. You know, I'm just interested in this stuff. So when it was my own baby, it was hard. I mean, I learned that the first time I got to hold her, it was because they thought she was going to die and they wanted me to have a chance to hold her while she was still alive. And that was, it was awful to hear, but how else can I appreciate what we went through but by knowing that and another person told me that um when a baby dies there's a a box they call it a bereavement box and it contains like a nice outfit and a hand handprint and footprint set and it's a little box of mementos that they make for the parents and on a couple of occasions they had the bereavement box ready for juniper just in case and my knees went out from under me when i heard that but I'm really glad I know because it really helps me understand exactly how far she came and how hard she fought. So I, I didn't want to be protected from any of that information. Right. Well, another thing I wondered, so I, I mean, the story in the best possible way is really difficult to read. I find like I had to stop several times and we can talk about the way it's constructed in a bit because I think it's it's kind of fascinating the way it was put together as a series, but um, it was partly because I like, I have a very, someone very close to me that something similar happened, but it didn't work out. You know, it went the other direction and that led me to wonder, and you don't have to answer this if you don't uh, want to, but do you think you would have or could have written this or written about this if, if she had died? I mean, no, like I, I, think definitely not and for several reasons one I don't think I would have been capable of writing anything I think I would have been so destroyed I just can't imagine how I would have moved on from that I think I would be like in an institution somewhere you know rocking and like drooling on myself um I I mean I know people have things like that happen to them and they get on with their lives I just from the place I am at now, I can't imagine how I would have written about it. But more importantly, 
I don't know what the meaning or the message in that story would be. And I don't know if I would have been able to achieve the distance to distill, you know, a message from it or to have anything important to say in a story Mm -hmm. about the death of my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I've read a lot of memoirs about very premature babies and some are better than others. And, and, and I've learned a lot from reading them, but, um, some of them do end very grimly. And I found that hard as a reader. And, um, some don't, um, really gain the altitude that I think you need to make the story, not just a personal story, but, but a universal one. Mm-hmm. So if, if I'd had it, if I'd had a dead baby, I would have had to write, the story would have been about me ultimately, cause I am ultimately the main character. And so I would have had to have been transformed in some way that was meaningful and hopeful. Mm-hmm. And I think that would have taken a lot of time. So I've read a lot of stories about people that ended up with kids with serious disabilities and they end up learning and growing. And those stories are not depressing to read. And I would have had something like that would have had to have happened. Or maybe you could tell a story about a dead baby through the perspective of a nurse or, you know, someone who's able to learn from that and make sense of it. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't have written that story about myself, at least not soon. Yeah. This, this story even has, I mean, it has these moments of humor in it which uh, in some cases I couldn't tell if they were retroactive humor or if that humor was something, you know, <laughs> at the time. Like there's one line about, I, th- I can't remember it exactly, but it's sort of like you got to hold her, I think, and you were sort of like, I have eaten Chipotle burritos bigger, like that weighed more than her. Yeah. And it was just this moment of it kind of like stopped me and I didn't know if I should laugh or not, <laughs> right. you know? Well, that's how it was um, because – you can't be sad all the time. Like your body has defense mechanisms against that, I think. Like it's it felt to me like my brain and my body were constantly seeking equilibrium. So that's why things that are really awful start to feel normal. There were times when I would be looking at her and I would think something that was just wildly inappropriate. <laughs> and I would kind of hate myself for it. You know, that's just life though. You yeah. know, life, <laughs> funny things happened. And it, the the way that you, uh, the way the story is constructed, so it was in three parts. Um, you know, I kind of read them all at once. So, but I, I, I assume it appeared, what, what kind of time spacing was it in the paper? It itself? ran on a Sunday, a Wednesday, and a Sunday. And we, we made people wait yeah. for the parts. We didn't put them all up online at once. And they're, they're. Again, in the in the best possible way, but they're sort of like excruciatingly, excruciatingly suspenseful uh, somehow. And w- did you was there? Did you consider whether to give people upfront information like this is all going to be okay, or did you know when you were sitting down to write it like, no, they're going to go on this the journey that I went on? Yeah, in some way. No, we knew we were going to make them wait, um, <laughs> and I I didn't quite know they were going to suffer as much as they suffered. I felt kind of bad about it when the story was running and people were calling me and they were crying into the voicemail and your phone numbers at the end. Oh my God. I mean, a lot of people seemed to feel like this story was happening in real time. Like I was writing about it in real time. So I had a lot of these people saying, I'm praying for your baby and I just hope it's okay. And I just hope it turns out all right. And you know, my, my kid was, um, was fine was like rolling over and crawling and stuff at home and 
but people were really upset and I felt kind of terrible, but also like I, I was really kind of proud of it, right, that's, you know, that's um, sort of the ultimate measure in yeah. some ways. <laughs> like they'd be sobbing and I'd be like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's another major player in this story, which is your husband yeah. who Tom French, who is also a writer of some renown. <laughs> um, and so was there uh, any th- struggle over who was going to write the story? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're both writers, and you know, Tom uh, is a Pulitzer Prize winner, and he does like to write for fun. Um, <laughs> he's written um, several books, and he, you know, he really saw this as a book right away. You know, once the baby was home and everything, and I've I've never written anything like a book, and um, I find that all really intimidating, but he was really excited. Like, this is going to be a great book. And for me, I just saw it. I thought, well, I don't know if I could do that, but I, I can write a good newspaper series about this. I, I think that length is comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. And I was very interested in um, what's immediate and relevant about this in medicine right now. It's a frontier in medicine right now, and it's changing every day. And I found that really interesting. And um, and I work for a newspaper, and newspapers come out every day. And so it was. I have a great relationship with my editor. He knew the story really well because he's a great friend, and he had been with us in the hospital, you know, at the worst moments when we thought Juniper was dying, and he he'd been there holding my hand, so he knew what a powerful story this was. So I had a very easy um, publishing outlet at the newspaper. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have to get an you know an agent and a contract and everything. Um, but what, as we kind of worked our way through this, Tom and I realized that we experienced the story totally differently, that we're very different storytellers and writers. We're, we're very much opposites in so many ways, um, including in how we work and how we write. And so ultimately we decided to do a book together where Mm -hmm. we sort of alternate chapters because... Um, our voices and our perspectives are so different. We thought there could be some cool energy in that. And what about just from the the a sort of working daily working perspective? To what's it like in a two writer household? I mean, this is a two writer household in a very extreme case where you're writing something that is incredibly could not be more personal to the other member of the household. What what is what was the sort of daily process like of you you writing and showing it to him or not showing it to him? Well, we're still in some ways working our way through that because yeah. he's just starting now to write too for the book. Yeah. Yeah. And it was is kind of tough, you know, because we both have really clear ideas about certain parts of the story. You know, and and what the story is about. And I wouldn't write it the same way Tom would write it and he wouldn't write it the same way I would write it. So I would write sections and show them to him. And his first reaction was, well, I'm not in it enough. (laughs) 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 Um, Which sounds funny, but actually it was an important point because I, I have a very internal perspective and I'm a total introvert and he's a total extrovert. So my first draft is going to be like, like you're looking through a tunnel or like, like I have blinders on. And I did have to push, push myself to, get more external stuff in my story, like scenes and other people. And, you know, his other reaction was, well, you, you took all the good scenes already, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I got the first crack at it. So I got to write about meeting her for the first time and the surgery and holding her for the first time. And 
he was like, well, you know, what's left for me? Well, it turns out there's a lot left, but we have to feel our way through that all the time, right? Right. It's pretty crazy. But we have a rule that only one of us can freak out at a time. <laughs> that seems like... And I, I take more than my share of turns, to be honest. <laughs> so it's not equal freakouts. It's just one it's at a time. It's really never been equal, but... not to be balanced. Yeah, one at a time is the rule. Um, one, a couple of things I just want to ask you about this sort of construction of the story itself. One, I noticed when I, I was rereading it and I was... So it was sort of my second time through and I had not noticed this and I was wondering if this is intentional. As you get to the the third part of the series, the paragraphs get longer and longer and longer. Oh my God. <laughs> is that, did you do that on purpose? No. <laughs> you, you should check it out because it's an amazing effect. Actually. It's like, it's not that it's, they, they, it's not like a gimmick where they start in single sentences and get longer and longer and longer. But the last, as she's sort of like, you see that she's coming out of the hospital, the paragraphs get to be quite long, which I, it had such an effect the second time I read it that I assumed it was intentional. That's really interesting. But I didn't write them um, in order. Well, I mean, I wrote the sections in order. But I wrote the last three sections of the story in one sitting. And I wrote them really quickly. Like mm. Tom was on the phone. And I was kind of waiting around for him. And I just had an idea about the ending. I kind of knew where I wanted it to end. And I knew there was going to be an epilogue. And I had an idea that I was going to write a section about miracles. So I kind of went in the other room and I sat down and I wrote the epilogue, like dashed it off. And I was like, okay, well, he's still on the phone. So then I wrote um, a section about leaving the hospital mm -hmm. and he was still on the phone. So I was like, well, I know I need to do this miracle section. So I just, <laughs> I just blasted that out. And in about 45 minutes, I wrote like three of my favorite sections I think I've ever written. And that happens to me a lot. Like I have a weird writing process where I stew and fret and panic and I think I have nothing but somehow like subconsciously my brain is working out this problem and it'll come to me kind of in a flash and some of my best writing happens like that and my worst writing is always where I haven't sort of had time to reflect mm -hmm. or figure out what I want to do um, so the writing in this story was pretty easy for me in day one because I'd given a lot of thought to those scenes I mean, you know, you're gonna write about the moment you meet her. Yeah, you spend a lot of time. You lived them too. You so. spend a lot of time thinking about that uh -huh. and what that was like, and it, you spend a lot of time thinking about what it was like to bring her home and what it all means. But the stuff in the middle, like, man, that was just a long, tedious slog of stress, and that was really difficult writing for me. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I didn't really notice the thing about the paragraphs getting longer, but each day has sort of a different tone. Like day one is very explainy and there's a lot to set up. And as it goes, it does get more narrative and it gets more personal. Yeah. So I guess it doesn't surprise me that the paragraphs would get longer because mm -hmm. there'd be more reflection and maybe a little bit less action. And then it, so it, it comes out and you described the sort of response you were getting from people uh, while it was, <laughs> while it was being published. But I imagine I mean, that you've just been flooded with people who have read it, who relate to it, who who not just, uh, you know, love the story. People might write you and say, oh, I loved your story. It meant a lot to me. But who actually have extremely visceral personal responses to it. And what is that like and how, how do you sort of uh, manage that side of things? Yeah, it's I mean, it's I've gotten three emails today about the story uh, while I've been at this conference. And um, it's. 
that's really cool. I mean, I'm told that, um, you know, hundreds of people a week are still just coming across. I mean, we're not promoting it or anything anymore, but the response is much deeper. Um, people connect with the story in a really visceral kind of way, usually because of some experience that they've had or some experience that uh, someone close to them has had. Um, I've had 90-year-old women crying into my phone about babies they lost 70 years ago. Uh. Um, I've had people kind of sneak up to me and tell me about babies that have died that they've never, that they don't talk about, you know, but that they, you know, are, that they carry with them all the time. I've had um, preemies who are grown up. And th- those are my favorite. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm 20 now and I have a scar just like Juniper's scar. And, you know, thank you for helping me understand who I am. Wow. And they're all, maybe it's just because these are people that choose to write me, but they seem like really proud of this beginning. And they all say, you know, I'm a fighter. And I was the smallest kid in school. And I, they tell me about their accomplishments. And they're all so, such interesting and open-hearted people. And it, it's, those make me cry, thinking about Juniper, you know, growing up and what she might make of this. Um, and I get emails every day from people who are sitting next to incubators in hospitals literally all over the world. And some of those just tear me up. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly following the stories of two or three babies, you know, all the time and emailing back and forth with these people. The thing about these emails is you can't not answer them. No. Yeah. It's not like you write a story about a, a rooster and somebody tells you good job and you say thanks and move on. It's like, I have to write, I have to really write back thoughtful responses to all of these people. It's like, it sounds like another job. Kind of, yeah, kind of, but you know, that's okay. And you, you briefly mentioned the sort of, I mean, there is a kind of potential political aspect of this as it relates to the abortion issue. And that's not in the story. I mean, the story has moral and ethical questions at its heart that it explores, I think really beautifully. Um, but it doesn't try to approach that, but has the story gotten wrapped up ever in, in what would, you know, be a larger sort of like political debate? It's weird. I mean, I was braced for that and dreading that a little bit and that really didn't happen and I hope it doesn't happen. So, and if there were politicians out there that wanted to um, try to drag me into something like that, I would resist that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm for, I'm for understanding what's happening, you know, and, and, and learning about it. And, you know, certainly this is, caused me to do some some really deep thinking and and exploration but um i don't want to be dragged into anybody's political debate have you thought much about uh either when you were writing the piece or now that's done or i guess in writing the book now about your daughter reading it someday and what she will think of it and does that influence the way you write it or do you try to block that out uh of of telling the story. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought about it a lot and I did have to block it out because, you know, she's not the audience. I mean, in a way she is. I mean, how she feels about it is hugely important to me. And if I were just writing it for her, I probably would have written it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, there probably, there are some things I probably would have left out. Um, but, 
this is a bigger story than just that. And I felt like I was really, if I was going to tell it, I really had to tell all of it. And I really had to tell it the way it really happened and not the way I kind of wished it had happened. And that meant getting into a lot of um, my vulnerabilities and my failures, you know. Um, And I worry about her feeling exposed. But, you know, she weighs five pounds, you know, at the end of the story. So I think she still has a lot of time to become her own person, you know, and have a private life. (laughs) And I think she might go through a time where she's embarrassed by it or annoyed or whatever. But, God, every parent, I mean, every kid should be embarrassed by their parent. And they they'll be embarrassed no matter what. And I, but I hope when she's older, she'll read it and see it as both, you know, stone evidence of how much we loved her, and of how strong she was and how hard she fought. I mean, to me, that was one of the most fascinating things about living this and writing about it is how we come into the world with no knowledge of um, what awaits us. But these babies fight so hard. What are they fighting for? I mean, the, just that that's, that that's what she's made of and that that's what's at her core. I think I really want her to know all about that. I mean, if she never has to prove to us again how tough she is. <laughs> well, that's probably a great place to stop. So thank you very much for coming on. really appreciate it. It's a great story great series of stories thank you it's been really fun thanks for listening to the long form podcast thanks to kelly benham for coming on thanks to the mayborn writers conference for hosting us and uh, my co-hosts are max linsky and aaron lammer from long form I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner, and we'll see you next week. run why does anyone i always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case most runners hate running (laughs) but they choose to do it in the new docuseries running sucks brought to you by team milk abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance it really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong team milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. 
Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.